the book of Psalms is a book of poetry, a book of songs um, from God's people addressed to God. And there's the entire range of human emotion from doubt to faith, from bitterness to exuberant joy, from an ordinary wondering where is God in the midst of all of this to the proclamation God is here in the midst of all of this. The whole range of human emotions comes to us in the book of Psalms. And in Psalm 130, we find the question of what to do as we wait, as we wait for God. And so let us share together in Psalm 130. And I have a different Bible than I am used to here. There we go. Here is the word of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you alone, O Lord, are our rock and our mighty redeemer. And in your name we pray. Amen and amen. Psalm 130 is a psalm about waiting for God. Waiting when there is something going on. Waiting when we want to hear a word. Waiting when we wonder what comes next. Waiting when we wonder why. And the writer of Psalm 130 can teach us a few things. The first is that he can teach us something about prayer. Now understand that in order for us to pray, God has to be a certain kind of God and not another kind of God. If God is like the force that has a dark side and a good side, if if God is some cosmic fog that simply permeates the universe, if God is just a bundle of impersonal energy, there is no need to pray. Prayer is language from one person directed to another person. Prayer is speech that is understood to be heard. Prayer is an address from one who wishes to communicate something to one who is ready to hear. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. 
when we pray, we pray not to an impersonal energy ball, but we pray to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this never-ending reality of the Trinity. And we believe that our voices are heard. We believe that the Lord's ears are attentive to those who pray. Even those who pray from the depths. Now, the depths in the Bible are described in a few different ways. Uh, The depths are described as a place of destruction where lives and goods are lost. And so in the Psalms, we hear, I am sinking, Lord, I am sinking into the depths. The water has come up to my neck. Save me, O God, save me. It's a place where lives and goods are lost in, in Ezekiel when there is this this great dirge against the nation of Tyre. God says that all of the great ships of Tyre and all of their treasures will sink into the depths where they are no more to be seen. But even though the depths are a place of destruction, this life-threatening image The depths are also a place which God can make a way through. We see that in the Red Sea. We see that as the people of Israel cross over the Jordan River. We see that in Isaiah 51 where Isaiah says, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to cross over? You and I may well cry out to God from the depths. The depths are a metaphor of these dangerous places for our faith, these dangerous places in our lives. We might cry out from the depths in the middle of a global pandemic when we don't know whether we will continue to keep our jobs, when we don't know if we'll be able to do the things in three months that we're able to do today. Thank God it looks like we're moving in the right direction, and I pray that we continue to move in the right direction. We cry out to God from the depths when we lose a loved one, whether it's expected or unexpected. People have this idea sometimes that it's better to be expected than unexpected or it's better to be unexpected than expected, but when you lose a loved one, whether it's expected or unexpected, there is this pain and there is this cry of the heart that God can hear and identify with in a way that is unlike any other. We may cry out to God from the depths when we get news ourselves that we didn't want to get. It's bad enough to age and get arthritis in the major joints of our body. It's worse. It's worse still to hear news of some kind of debilitating disease. The unexpected is a place where we may call out to God. We may reach a point, and I feel like um, the midlife crisis is one of those things that, that people go through because they reach this point where they look back at what is uh, apparently the first half of adulthood and suddenly they wonder, does my life have any meaning? Have I made any difference at all? 
and out from the depths in sometimes frightening ways, we call out to the Lord and we ask, Oh God, has it mattered? And does it? Or our depths may be this series of unfortunate events. You know how it is. How you experience something bad, and then two days later you experience something equally bad or worse. And then three days after that you lose your job. And then a couple of days after that something just awful happens. And then you call your sister and you say, (laughs) I had a wreck today. And you're laughing about it because you just can't imagine how all of these things, one after another, this series of unfortunate events have occurred. The writer of Psalm 130 is not the only one who cries out to God from the depths. We have our own. But this worshiper, this writer, this poet, this songwriter approaches God convinced that God hears and convinced that God is attentive to the cries of His people. Dear friends, if God is a personal God, if God understands the language that we pour out to God, if God is one who wants to hear His people pray, then the Lord is attentive to the cries of His people. The writer of Psalm 130 teaches us that prayer matters. The writer of Psalm 130 also shares with us this conviction that God is a pardoning God. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? Now, many of you, especially those of you who are parents, have probably marked iniquities in your day. Back when our kids were kids, we had two different jars. And we had a a jar that was filled with like ten glass beads and an empty jar. And every time someone did something that they weren't supposed to do, one of those beads got moved over into the other jar. And if enough beads got moved from one jar to the next, then the kid lost his or her allowance. They didn't know that a dollar wasn't really worth that much. But But to mark iniquities... To keep track of everything that somebody has done wrong. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? If God were keeping a record, a hashtag, hash mark, every time that you or I thought something, said something, did something, didn't do something, did something wrong, if God were to keep track of all that, who in the world could come before God and pray? Who in the world could approach the Lord and even hope that He would hear? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. If we're to glorify God, we glorify God because He is a forgiving God and we can come before Him to bring Him glory. If we honor God, we can honor God because He forgives people who sin. 
like you, like me. And so the question, what sort of God is it that we cry out to? Do we cry out to one who is set on condemnation, who has a whip in his hand and is looking directly at you, waiting on you to mess up, and if you do, there's a lightning bolt ready for you? No, that's not the kind of God we cry out to. We cry out to a God who is so interested in relationship with people that he chooses to relate to those who even have questionable biographies. Had somebody tell me in the last six months, Preacher, there's not enough salvation in all the world to save someone like me. Well, what about Abraham? Abraham, who's married to Sarah, but is willing to give her away to save his own skin. There's a saint in stained glass who has a questionable biography. And then there's Moses. Moses is a murderer. He killed a man. And then he runs away from the law and suddenly he finds himself in front of a burning bush. Take off your shoes for the ground on which you stand is holy. What about Joseph's brothers? Joseph and his brothers become the 12 tribes of Israel. They become the nation through whom God gives the law and presents to the world that which is right and that which is wrong. These men become the nation that offer to us the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Haggai, Zephaniah, Zechariah. These men become the nation that offers to us the Messiah come in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth. Joseph's brothers, though, the fathers of the nation, they sell him into bondage. God uses them with their questionable biography. Peter denies knowing Jesus three times. There it is. He, he, for all he knows, he'll never get another chance. Thanks be to God in the resurrection, he does get another chance. But for all he knows, it's the last night of Jesus' life. And there he is. He's trying to be close to him. He, he's trying to offer some support from a distance. And somebody says, I recognize your accent. You are one of them. Peter says, no, I'm not. And three times he denies even knowing Jesus. Paul. Paul has to be one of the strangest saints in stained glass that we have. Paul starts off his career by seeking to arrest and torture even have a hand in killing Christians. And suddenly he sees a light. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Lord, who is it? Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The psalmist brings to us a conviction that God is a pardoning God. 
even for those with sketchy biographies. Maybe you've got a sketchier biography than anybody here knows. Maybe it's only you and God that understand what's gone on. Nehemiah tells us a little bit about the nature of God. They and our ancestors acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and they did not obey your commandments, Nehemiah says. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of the wonders you performed among them, but they stiffened their necks and determined to return to their slavery in Egypt. But, but, You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. The psalmist teaches us about prayer. The psalmist teaches us about this conviction that God is a pardoning God. And the psalmist teaches us the unavoidable experience of waiting. We we can't help it. We spend our lives waiting one way or another. When we're in preschool, we wait to get to kindergarten. When we're in kindergarten, we wait for elementary school. Elementary schoolers wait for middle school, and middle schoolers wait for high school, and then there's waiting to either go out into the world and get a job or or go to college, and then Monday through Friday, we wait for the weekends. And then, during the spring, we wait for the summer and vacation. And then as we age, we we wait for retirement. And then when we retire, we wait... That's as far as I'll go. (laughs) Melinda's sitting in Charlotte, North Carolina right now, waiting on a plane that she thought would be there at 7.15 last night. Waiting. It's just a part of life. I don't know where the statistic comes from, but some say that we wait six months out of our life for the traffic light to change from red to green. Six months. Now, I don't know if that's in Danville, I don't know if that's in New York City or Minneapolis, but that's a lot of waiting. A lot of waiting. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His Word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. More than those who watch for the morning. We spend a lot of time waiting. In one of my previous appointments, I met a woman who was 99 years old. And I said to her, I'm excited about coming to your 100th birthday party. And she says, oh God, I hope not. (laughs) And I thought to myself, well, she she had a good quality of life. She could get up. She could do everything. She couldn't drive anymore. They'd taken her keys away. But she said, I've lived long enough. (laughs) And I'm ready. I'm waiting to see my Jesus. There's a woman in Springfield who is 110 years old. She has served Jesus 
for almost her entire life. And you know she gets up in the morning and recognizes that there is more in the rearview mirror than, than there in the windshield ahead. But she served Jesus and she's waiting. She's waiting. I love this language here. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. I remember like my first family camp out. And I'd gotten into the tent and a copperhead was discovered very close to my tent. And this was theoretically before I went to sleep. I never went to sleep. <laughs> I kept my eyes open. I convinced myself that it was, it was later than it really was. I kept looking around to make sure that all the zippers were closed as tightly as they could be so that if the copperhead had a friend, it would not slither in, unknown to me, into, um, into my own tent. My tent was facing east. And I remember waiting, waiting for the sun to rise. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. So we wait for God. We wait for God to act, to do something. When the world isn't right, we wait for God to intervene. When we've prayed for, for 20 years for a family member, for a family member to, to come to faith, or for, for a family member to... Uh, to be whole again after this terrible brokenness. We wait for God to answer. We wait for God to come. Friends, we're blessed people. We're blessed people. When we leave here, we can go out to eat. We can go home and raid our refrigerators. I know people, personally, who today could not tell you what they're going to eat and might not eat or drink clean water until Tuesday or Wednesday. And even then, it may come as a surprise to them. We wait for God to come and wipe away every tear from our eyes so that death and pain and sorrow will be no more. We wait for God to come. We wait for God to relieve us of our mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual anguish Sometimes that anguish is circumstantial. There's just this, this accumulation of things that causes us to simply wallow in a kind of brokenness. Other times it's the amount of serotonin in our brains. But we wait. We wait for God to show us a way out. We wait for God ultimately to take us from life through death to life after life. None of us will get out of this life without that experience unless Jesus comes first. We wait. We wait. And sometimes like my 99-year-old friend who, oh God, she did not want to celebrate her 100th birthday, and she didn't. <laughs> the, Lord, the Lord took her home um, perhaps a couple of months before that. 
But I still would have loved to have celebrated that with her. Beautiful, beautiful soul. Lover of God. And believe me, she knew. She knew who was going to take her from life through death to life after life. There's this unavoidable experience of waiting that the psalmist brings us through, but then there's also this determination to wait in faith. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is great power to redeem. It is He who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. There is this determination to wait in faith. There are probably more people who are determined not to wait in faith or who simply are not waiting in faith than those who are. There's a narrow gate. There's a narrow road. And we who seek to love God with all of our hearts, souls, minds, and strength, it's it's us who come to this determination to wait and to wait in faith. Henry Nowen said, waiting is a period of learning. The longer we wait, the more we hear about Him for whom we are waiting. The longer we wait, the more we hear about Him for whom we are waiting. And then Eugene Peterson, in his uh, paraphrase of Romans 8.24, waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. What is it you're waiting for? A break from all of this that's happening to you? A diagnosis, a new treatment? The answer to a prayer you've been praying for decades? What is it that you're waiting for? Are you waiting with the quiet confidence that you're not quite sure what comes next, but you know that the God who forgives, the God who loves, accompanies you in this waiting? Psalm 130 teaches us as we wait to know that God hears and listens. As we wait, we can know that God pardons us from our offenses. As we wait, we can learn and we can grow and we can learn more about the one for whom we wait. And as we wait, we can wait as a peculiar people of faith whose trust lies not only in this world, but in the one who made the world and everything in it. What are you waiting for?
And are you waiting and knowing that God hears you, forgives you, gives Himself to you, and offers you this gift of faith? Are you waiting as one who loves God? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we wait for so many things, for packages that we order to arrive, for traffic lights to change, to see whether something we've applied for goes through. But then there's a significant kind of waiting. There's waiting for you to be revealed in our lives and for your will ultimately be to be accomplished in us. With this ancient writer, God, we feel his emotions. We see his faith. We trust his convictions. We believe that you hear us. And so, O God, give us faith always and everywhere to entrust ourselves to you, even as we wait. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.